Stop, period. Spreading, period. Rumors, exclamation point. X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Friday, September 11th. Today, back in the day, September 11th, 1789, Alexander Hamilton was appointed the first secretary of the U.S. Treasury. And like almost all of us, we won't forget today, back in the day, September 11th, 2001, two passenger planes hijacked by al-Qaeda terrorists crashed into the New York World Trade Towers, causing the collapse of both and the deaths of 2,606 people. On that same day, a plane intentionally crashed in the Pentagon, causing a death of 125 people. And a flight from Boston was hijacked but crashed prior to reaching its ultimate destination. In early September 2001, I was in New York for the U.S. Open. On that trip, I took a video with a friend at the top of the World Trade Center. A bit over a week later, with that video still in my email inbox, those towers fell. A different friend of mine had been in the building. I spoke to her mom shortly thereafter. And Mary Lou's last words to her mom were, They told us it will be safer to stay in the building. I couldn't and I still can't imagine that mother's pain. Together, these attacks took 2,977 lives and caused over 25,000 injuries. This day, 19 years ago, marks the deadliest terrorist attack in American history. Sandy Dahl, the wife of Flight 93 pilot Jason Dahl, said, If we learn nothing else from this tragedy, we learn that life is short and there is no time for hate. I I suspect nothing will erase the horrific memory of that attack. 191,000 people are confirmed dead from COVID-19, about 1,000 people a day confirmed. Those deaths were not sudden. Those deaths also matter. Today, we will have your Quick 6 News headlines. Kate Kay has an update on the Portland City Council facial recognition vote and Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury, with an update on her local headlines. X-ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 local rundown. Winds and air quality may improve, though fires are continuing to blaze. Earlier in the summer, we had a bunch of rainy days. I remarked then on the air that hopefully all that rain would mean a mild fire season. So big fires didn't pile on to a global pandemic, racial injustice, an economic collapse, and attacks on democracy. Boy, howdy, am I a dummy. Some non-horrible news, though. Luckily for firefighters, winds are dying down a bit. Over Labor Day, the hot, dry winds caused the fires to spread at an alarming rate. Now firefighters will have an opening to fight the blazes more directly. The fires have killed at least three people. If you're listening to this from Portland, your morning is smoky out there. It's forced thousands more to evacuate. One family's evacuated into the house I'm planning on moving into in a few weeks. Nearly 50 fires are burning over 800 square miles here in Oregon. The towns of Detroit, Blue River, Vida, Phoenix, and Talent are all substantially destroyed. In nearby Clackamas County, over 200 homes and other buildings have been damaged or destroyed. And the entire county is under some version of an evacuation warning. More than half the county, including Estacada and Malala, are under orders to evacuate immediately. To be clear, there have been a bunch of debunked rumors about Antifa terrorists setting the fires. Here's from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. I am just quoting them. Remember when we said to follow official sources only? Remember when we said rumors make this already difficult incident even harder? Rumors spread just like wildfire, and now our 911 dispatchers and professional staff are being overrun with requests for information and inquiries on an untrue, all caps, they're all caps, untrue rumor that six Antifa members have been arrested for setting fires in Douglas County, Oregon. Again, all caps from the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. This is not true. Unfortunately, people are spreading this rumor, and it is causing problems. Do your part. Again, all caps. Stop, period. Spreading, period. Rumors, exclamation point. Follow official sources of information such as local emergency response websites and pages, government websites and pages, and local reputable news outlets. Please share far and wide.
Meanwhile, the Department of Corrections has deployed 150 prisoners to fight the fires, along with over 3,000 firefighters, about 150 Oregon inmates will help. That program's been around since about 1951. All prisoners undergo 40 hours of training before they're deployed. Their training continues as long as they're part of the crew. It's billed as an opportunity for prisoners to leave the jail and develop work skills. But despite the dangerous nature of the work, prisoners are paid the prison wage of $9.80 a day for their labor. A reminder, folks, the air quality in Portland is still very poor, so stay safe, stay inside, wear a mask or respirator if you're outside, particularly if you're immunocompromised or otherwise at risk. And if climate fires aren't enough, your daily dose of coronavirus data, 187 new confirmed cases today, lower than previous averages, bringing our total number of confirmed cases in Oregon to 28,645. Three new confirmed deaths, bringing the total in Oregon to 497. Coronavirus cases are still on the decline, but wildfire smoke or climate fire smoke, if you're Governor Jay Inslee of Washington, may increase your risk of contracting the virus. Inflammation caused by smoke could increase vulnerability to respiratory infections, including COVID-19. It's important to remember that cloth masks, which can offer some protection from COVID-19, do not protect from all the tiny smoke particles in the air. Respirators are a safer option if you're vulnerable or immunocompromised. Vulnerable people should limit their time outside when possible. Stay back, stay inside, wear a mask, and also avoid strenuous activity like outdoor exercise where possible. In Washington state, the total number of coronavirus cases has reached 78,000 people, actually 78,009 people, and total number of confirmed deaths, almost 7,000, 6,966. Portland City Council has announced a new housing security proposal. Ted Wheeler announced the new proposal to keep people safely housed during the pandemic. Part of the plan would require landlords to pay tenants relocation costs if they raise the rent by any amount. Current rules require landlords to pay only if they raise the rent by more than 10%. The plan would also allocate half a million dollars of housing aid for Portlanders who spend more than half of their monthly income on rent. Wheeler also said he would consider extending the eviction moratorium if Governor Kate Brown doesn't extend it past September 30th. Right now, the moratorium gives tenants a six-month extension to pay all unpaid rent since April. The challenge, of course, if they didn't have it once a month over the past several months doesn't mean they're going to have it all in one big lump sum six months later. According to recent data from Multifamily Northwest, between 12% and 15% of tenants did not make rent between May and July. And in continuing protest news, Mayor Ted Wheeler banned the use of tear gas in protests. Previous restrictions of tear gas had been somewhat ambiguous, shall we say. In June, Wheeler ordered that tear gas should be used in demonstrations only that threatened, quote, life safety. But now, after more than 100 days of protests and some bad polling for the mayor, Wheeler is ordering police to stop using tear gas completely. And that's, in effect, immediately. There have been environmental and health questions, including people wondering if it's impacting menstrual cycles, including the Oregon Department of Environmental Quality to investigate the impacts of tear gas. There hasn't been enough research to provide definitive answers, but now there's a definitive answer from the mayor about when it should be used. It shouldn't be used. And protests have returned to the ICE building after a DHS official criticized the city. Homeland Security Secretary Chad Wolf drew headlines when the first wave of federal agents came to Portland to quash protests. In a speech yesterday, he criticized Portland city leaders for allowing the destruction of property during the protests. He said he was proud of the work federal officers did in Portland. That work earned them a handful of lawsuits for excessive force and violation of constitutional rights. Wolf's comments are part of an ongoing blame game between Portland and Oregon officials and the federal government over the ongoing protests. 
So how did protesters respond? They chanted, played music, and danced outside the ice building. Oregon is not adequately addressing the mental health needs of its youth, says a new report. A new audit from the Oregon Secretary of State's office took a look at the systemic issues in Oregon's mental health treatment system. The study showed that Oregon has a higher rate of young people diagnosed with mental illness than the national average. But Oregon ranks as one of the worst states for mental health infrastructure. So what are some of the problems? First, a lack of basic data on mental health issues and treatments. Second, a shortage of direct care workers. Third, Oregon Health Authority also has a high turnover rate, which makes it hard for staff to build relationships with children. One of the major issues is the lack of coordination between OHA and the child welfare system. It makes it harder for children to get the specific care that they need. also makes it harder for agencies to get all the information they need to properly treat the kids. Secretary of State's office laid out 22 recommended changes for the health authority, including more specific and clear goals and calling for better data metrics and employee accountability. Royal Slope, Washington was declared a new American viticultural area. An American viticultural area, or AVA, is a place perfectly suited for growing wine grapes. They're kind of rare. New ones aren't often declared. When a new one is declared, people go and buy land there so they can make vineyards. The Royal Slope AVA takes up 156,000 acres just north of the Tri-Cities at southeastern Washington. The soil grows Cabernet Sauvignon, Syrah, and Viognier quite well, apparently. In a month, wineries can submit requests for new labels using the Royal Slope AVA name. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Wednesday marked a historic vote by Portland City Council. Here's Kate Kay and Jefferson Smith with more. We have on the line right now Kate Kay, who has been leading the coverage in our town and beyond on facial recognition rules. Yesterday, a historic vote by the Portland City Council. Good morning, Kate Kay, and why don't you explain that vote? Uh, good morning, Jefferson. How's it going? Um, so, yeah, so yesterday the Portland City Council unanimously passed the most uh, radical ban on facial recognition anywhere. I mean, it looks like in the world. And, uh, and it's radical. It yeah, and go on, because it's not doesn't only regard police or even the city employees or city bureaus. It also impacts private businesses. Yeah, I mean, it, it so it it outlaws use of facial recognition technology um, in privately owned places with public access. So that encompasses all sorts of businesses, um, think, uh, you know, retail stores, uh, banks, hotels. It actually includes Airbnbs. It includes the lobby of an office building. It includes, um, it includes um, private schools. Uh, so it, it, it's totally... Uh, goes way beyond. There's about a dozen other facial recognition bans in the country. Um, other cities or municipalities have banned this, but they've all really focused on city agency use and really focusing on law enforcement use. Um, and this is Portland saying, hey, uh, we realize that this stuff can be used by private entities and have the same kind of impact potentially um, in terms of, you know, um, potentially harmful discrimination because this technology is 
um, has been proven to have inaccuracies when it comes to detecting um, people of color, especially and women of color. Um, and, you know, um, data privacy um, issues, all sorts of things that they want to address uh, in this with this ban. And this goes so, beyond yeah. your expectations. This track pretty closely your expectations. And and I, yeah, but I go ahead. Um, I, uh, you know, I have to say that I was wondering whether there was a good deal of opposition from business groups not only locally but also nationally and I'd they're worried that this would set up that but i they were worried this would set a precedent they were worried about setting precedent the national groups i think arguably were worried about setting precedent i think the local ones like the portland business associate business alliance the technology association of oregon the oregon bankers association they had their own concerns but you know um portland business alliance said at a Session, a city council session back in January. Uh, we're worried about Portland looking inhospitable, uh, inhospitable to the tech industry. We are worried this is going to look like Portland is an anti-tech city. Um, you know, there a lot of them were really worried about the private right of action that this ban now allows. It allows people to sue violators of this. So, for example, um, Jackson's Food Stores is a convenience store here in Portland that, well, I mean, they're all over the place, but they have a bunch of them here. Three of those Jackson's stores use facial recognition right now, today. If after the private ban goes into effect January 1st, 2021, if Jackson says, yeah, we don't feel like taking our facial recognition down and somebody says hey these guys are violating my rights by having this up well they could sue them well kate Kay, i want to say thank you so much for your reporting thanks for tracking this story and also recognizing as we look at the decision to also cover private businesses very often i remember when there was the nsa stories the mm-hmm. uh, and there was this big concern oh geez there's a government agency who's watching us and then not similar <laughs> scrutiny on all of the data that's being collected by the private sector. At least when the public sector is doing it, there is some arguable, maybe indirect tether to a vote that could happen that could remove a politician, change a committee to improve oversight or increase oversight over that public entity. Only thing you're going to do if Apple, Facebook, Microsoft, Google or Netflix does it is, I don't know, buy the company, which you're never going to be able to afford. Right. I mean, there, so, so this, is, this is Portland saying, I mean, Mayor Wheeler has said this a few times about this issue. Um, he said, hey, the, fe- the federal government has, he's, he's used the term punted on this issue. And we feel like um, our city needs to have some, be forward thinking, um, not be exposed to some of the same concerns that, some of the same problems that happened when other big tech um, you know, entered Portland like the Ubers and Lyfts of the world or the Airbnbs of the world where, you know, cities were kind of blindsided. Yep. Um, it's not exactly the same issue. I mean, facial recognition, um, there's a, a, tons of concern about, you know, mass surveillance and um, and even just the idea that, uh, a, you know, any company could be gathering biometric data and, uh, you know, not having the right kinds of 
um, privacy and security in place. I do think it's worth, worth noting really quickly that a lot of people might not realize the Oregon Bankers Association asked for an exemption in this law. They wanted banks to be exempt. Um, so they wanted you to be able to walk into your bank and facial recognition could still be used to identify. To well, what if John Dillinger came by? Identify. John Dillinger what? still want. What if John Dillinger came by? <laughs> well, Kay, Kay, thank well. you. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. And thank you for all of your intrepid reporting. If people want to see what I've done, um, go to Kate K reports on Twitter. That's the best place to find everything. Kate K reports on Twitter. And in PD. We have an x-ray podcast about this. It's called Band and PDX. Band um, and PDX. Share it with friends. You can detail. track this. You can track this, the evolution of this discussion that's been happening in Portland, K, that Kate K has been following for months and years. You can check all of that <laughs> at xraypod.com, at Band and PDX. Thank you so much, Kate. Yep. Thanks. And now we have an interview with Alex Zelensky, news editor of the Portland Mercury. Alex talks about the eviction moratorium and the settlement with the family of Lane Martin a man who was fatally shot nine times by an officer of the Portland Police Bureau. Here's Alex Zielinski speaking with X-Ray's Jefferson Smith. Alex Zielinski, good morning. Good morning. Tell us about the current state of the eviction moratorium. Yeah, so it's tricky since there's so many different jurisdictions. I mean, since the beginning of um, kind of COVID, there have been multiple jurisdictions coming forward with different plans about um, halting evictions, whether that's the city of Portland, Multnomah County, uh, the state of Oregon, or even, you know, kind of belatedly the federal government. So right now, the um, the local, the, the, the city and county eviction moratorium, which is um, uh, has been melded into one, um, is expected to, to end on um, September 30th. So meaning that, you know, um, purportedly rent is due on October 1st. Um, that has changed now that um, the CDC has actually put out a new rule for the entire country that uh, evictions should be stalled until the end of the year, um, which is definitely an unusual move to come from the CDC. But I think, um, you know, their argument is that it's, a public health crisis and housing and staying housed is really critical to not spread um, the coronavirus. And I think, I don't think any other um, maybe agencies in the federal government are that interested in that right now. So right now, locally, we are protected kind of by this federal um, policy, along with the local policy, which kind of lays out when rent will be eventually due and, and when kind of the the moratorium, you know, it's not the same as canceling rent. Folks still have to pay back all of the, the rent that they might have not paid in the past few months. Um, and that deadline for, for paying all the rent back is uh, is in March of next year, which, you know, a lot of folks um, who can't afford rent right now probably can't afford rent in March. I mean, it's hard to say what will change between now and then when it comes to the economy rebooting, um, let alone just being able to save. Yeah, uh, so let's pause Let's pause there for a moment, just so I, I'm clear about the dates. The eviction yeah. moratorium goes until when? The proposal is to change it until when? So the eviction moratorium has been, um, the national eviction moratorium has been pushed to December 31st. Yep. And that's the one that the local government is now following. Um, however, 
the 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 state uh, county and uh, city moratorium is set to expire on September 30th. But since we have this uh, federal rule now, we're following we're going we're following those guidelines. Basically. So it's the end of December, and then what's the rule for paying back the money? That's the March date. That's the March March 31st. Yeah. And so the idea is uh, that somehow yeah. in those three months, people who haven't paid rent for seven months are going to have seven months worth of rent. They're going to have you know eight grand lying around ready to write a check to their landlord. Exactly. And so that's kind of, at least locally, um, what folks are really holding their breath to, to see if the state legislature or the governor will, um, you know, create a new rule or policy around not necessarily canceling rent and erasing that debt, but um, finding a more realistic solution to, to paying back that debt that won't just, I mean, a lot of folks just see this delaying evictions by a few more months, you know, there, there's no, it's really hard to see how folks who can't afford rent now will be able to, um, by then, let alone, yeah, pay back debts. What are um, the, have you heard any interesting ideas bubble up? I mean, I know that people think about kind of up the chain, right? So there's the, there's the employer that is employing the person that might or might not have the money to pay them. There's the person who doesn't have the money to pay their rent, the human being that's the tenant. There's the landlord whose property is almost certainly leveraged to the bank, who's got bills to pay to the bank. They've got their their sort of mortgage or their large loan, their portfolio loan bill. They got to pay to the bank. And then the bank, well, I guess maybe the bank is holding all the bags. So what are the, is there proposal to sort of share that burden? Anything smart you're hearing out there? Right now, not really. Right now, it's mostly like people kind of throwing together Band-Aid solutions and temporary fixes um, and not and kind of floundering when it comes to a longer-term fix. I mean, I don't know. Um, a, lo- a lot of leaders right now are concerned that we're just kind of spiraling towards the same, um, you know, housing crisis we had in 2008. Yeah. Uh, there's just, there's not, we haven't fixed. The, the way that banks and housing are tied together uh, since 2008 yet. And so there's just a lot of, a lot of question marks. And, and whenever I kind of I try to go down that, um, follow the, the chain of command to figure out kind of, okay, where could, uh, you know, where could policy play in or where could there be a stopgap to support everyone at once? Um, it, it's really tricky. And I mean, granted the people with the most power are the folks in the banks. Um, and they seem like the last people who are going to be, um, you know, penalized for what's going on. Yeah. And and here's the thing. So by the way, it is, uh, potentially an argument for, if not an argument for a reminder of the value of public banks, because if you had a public bank and even the most modern, uh, public bank proposals, uh, don't even regard mortgages. But if you had, but if you had public banking, you could then say, okay, we're, you know what? We're going to share the burden. Here's what we're going to write some checks to landlords and we're going to have some relaxation of the amount that needs to be paid to the banks. And everybody's going to get hosed a little bit, but nobody's going to get hosed totally. And the reason for that isn't just compassion. The reason is so no domino falls completely through the ground into the, into Hades and to make sure that that doesn't spread through the economy. If you have mass evictions, that's an issue for all those human beings. It's also an issue for everybody else who is impacted by how those people live their lives, which is, oh, 
lot of people. So, yeah. but we don't have that possibility. And if you tried to do that to private banks, I think they've got a constitutional contractual claim. They said, no, we got a deal. You can't make us not do our deal. So I think ultimately the solution is, you know, long lengthening moratoriums, maybe only uh, requiring, you know, you could do something like we're only going to require you to pay half the money back. You can't evict anybody who pays half the money back uh, or, you know, some percentage. Another thing is then just writing checks, writing checks to landlords, writing checks to banks or writing checks to tenants and bottom right. up sounds I mean, better than top of, down. That, that's what the city of Portland has kind of um, turned towards right now. Like they are, they're not entirely sure, you know, how to fix the problem up the chain. And so they're pulling money from the housing bureau to um, go towards, you know, uh, rent support, which is basically writing checks for people who are um, right on the, you know, threatened with eviction specifically, and uh, people who are living in um, already really tenuous economic, you know, situations. And so they've, you know, put aside, I think it's $500,000, which certainly is a drop in the bucket when it comes to uh, the amount of, of rent that's needing to be paid. But um, that's, you know, the, the, the most recent kind of announcement from the city is that they're going to be starting to, to put more funding towards just kind of the stopgap measure of writing checks and helping people stay in, in their houses right now, along with um, uh, extending the or expanding the renter relocation policy, which was passed in 2017, which basically means uh, or mandates any landlord who raises the rent by more than 10 percent. Um, to, uh, among other things, but to help uh, pay to, to have someone relocated so they can help help them find housing if they can no longer afford to live in the place that they're in, like writing them, you know, a $2,000, $4,000 check. Um, now that is expanded for anyone, um, any renter who experiences any percentage of a rent increase during COVID, not 10% or higher, but any percent. So, um Basically, it's an incentive against raising rent because a lot of landlords don't like the renter relocation program. They don't want to have to spend money to help folks find a new place to live. Um, so, you know, it's really it's Band-Aid solutions right now. But I it's you know, I have no idea what else the city could possibly yeah. be doing. It's, and we got a text that actually about that. Your point on the city. And this was uh, I'll just read the text because I started. Ted Wheeler's done a good job on the budget finding. Uh, over the $40 million a year for homeless, uh, so good on financial management, poor on re- regarding police, community relations, homelessness. is, And this is the line I wanted to amplify for what you said. Homelessness is too big a problem for local government to solve alone. Yeah, in fact, it used to be a bigger ambit of federal government until the Reagan administration. We got this question, though. Uh, I think from Deborah Winger, does Fe- they didn't say their name, so I'm assuming it's Deborah Winger. Does the federal CDC rule apply to commercial leases? I don't know if you're in a position to answer that question, but I wanted to read the text. I don't think it does. I don't um, think it does either. I don't think it does, but uh, I would, I would ask her to double check. Yeah. Um, but right now, what I'm hearing is it's just for residential. Yeah, that's my understanding as because well. Because it's specifically about keeping keeping people in their homes. Right. Um, not necessarily saving businesses, which is a whole nother, of course, a whole nother conversation too, because rent is also due for small businesses who haven't been able to afford uh, or make any money or income in the past few months. So, Well, we've got about a minute to say that the uh, city council yesterday announced a settlement with the family of Lane Martin. Can you give us that in about 30 seconds before they kick us off the air? Yeah, uh, Lane Martin was uh, one of the five people who were fa- 
fatally killed by Portland police last year. Um, he was in a mental health crisis when he was shot, um, which is pretty standard for the, the scenarios in which Portland police um, end up fed, uh, fatally shooting or, or hurting someone. Um, and uh, Portland City Council yesterday agreed to um, almost a $1 million settlement agreement with his family who sued the city um, with a actually with a civil rights lawsuit uh, arguing that the police, Portland police discriminated against their son or uh, against Lane because of his um, mental illness, because he was acting, um, you know, showing signs of uh, being mentally ill at the time that he was killed. Um, and instead of taking that to trial, the city has decided to um, to settle. Um, and it's it's actually it's a remarkably large settlement agreement. It's the fourth biggest, um, costliest settlement agreement the city's uh, had to pay in regards to Portland police um, uh, conduct. And uh, equally remarkable is that the other three, all the top four costliest payouts um, regarding Portland police all involved uh, or centered on a person who was killed or injured during a mental health crisis. And both so, of them, both of them, reminders about not only the ballot initiative on police accountability, but also the Portland Street response to make sure we have mental health expertise out there. Alex Zelensky, thank you so much for being with us. Of course, thanks for having me on. Thanks to Kate and Alex for all that you do and for joining the local. Big thanks to the production team, executive editor Will Romy, supporting editors Miranda Selinger, Brian Miller, Jaleesa Ringering, and Sam Smargiasi. Big thanks to writers Jonathan Covington-Brem, Augustine Elizabeth, Kate Kay, Sophie Mallon, Brian Miller, Julie Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Jaleesa Ringering, Barb Seaman, and Sam Smargiasi again. And an eternal thanks to co-executive producer Emily Gilliland. I'm Jefferson Smith. Feel free to send story ideas and suggestions to the local at xray.fm, maybe even sponsor ideas. Feel free to post compliments and five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast platform. Big thanks to original journalism and research by the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, New York Times, COVID19.healthdata.org, the Oregon Historical Society, Portland Business Journal, Lambert Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, the Oregonian Statesman Journal, Street Roots, and News Partners, Bridgeliner, and the Portland Mercury. Thanks for listening to Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you on Monday. X-Ray.